the level of craftsmanship, you know, Jim Cameron is, is so skillful that when you have, you know, whether it's a fight scene or a chase or whatever, you know, you watch, you know, shot by shot, just how well shot and how well edited that is. There's some really exciting sequences within the film. And so even though I, after a while, felt it was kind of tedious, I would perk up when one of those scenes came on. And yet even there, you just feel like, okay, it's like so many of today's blockbuster films, the superhero films, they don't know when to quit. You and I've had this discussion where, you know, okay, I'm all for building towards a climax, but then have the climax, denouement, let us go home. But, you know, it's like, no this and then that, and it, they just keep piling it on. And again, it's a lack of discipline in a certain sense, particularly when you know you're going to have additional sequels. You don't have to say everything now, hold some of it back. The audience will appreciate that. We want to look forward to the next one. Right now, I feel exhausted from the one I just watched. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today, Mike, you and I are going to talk about movies that have come out at the end of the last year in that breakneck speed to be considered for the Academy Awards at the end of the year. So you have all these blockbusters that came out, such as Avatar, The Way of Water, and Babylon. And starting with Avatar, The Way of Water, Mike, this movie had so much buildup, so much expectation, given that the original Avatar was so groundbreaking and so different and exciting. There was a lot of people, you know, waiting and waiting for the sequel to come out and to see what could be done next with it. And my sense of the movie was that I saw it in Screen X, and it was very much like being inside of an aquarium with the movie. So I have to say from the outset that it was a big success in terms of special effects, but there's so much there to unpack. Mike, where do you want to start with Avatar? The Way of Water. Marie, you spent more than three hours in that aquarium. (laughs) And and so that's actually what I want to talk about, the, the numbers involved here. It's important to remember that it's been 13 years since the original Avatar. In movie years, that's a lot of years in terms of release patterns. And there was so much anticipation for this film. You know, and again, in terms of numbers, you know, bear in mind that the original Avatar is the all-time box office champ. I mean, such an enormous hit. And it really predates, for the most part, what we now call the Marvel Universe. You know what I mean? And I don't just mean Marvel movies. I just mean that sort of superhero or blockbuster, spectacular, whatever whatever synonyms you want to use here. Not that there hadn't been such films earlier, but that current wave that we're very much still in. Avatar arguably kind of kicks that off, doesn't it? It really sort of sets us on, on the path we're on now. But here's the real problem in terms of the numbers that we're running. Avatar has a running time of over three hours. Like the last 10 or 12 minutes are just the credits. So, you know, it's it's really such a long film. And people will think I'm saying what I'm about to say by way of exaggerating for effect. And I'm really not. I'm totally on the level when I say this is a three-hour movie that should cut 90 minutes. And again, it's like, oh, come on, he's being funny. He's being snide and snarky and all. Well, yes, I am that. But also, I honestly mean that because there actually is a good film embedded within this or several good films even. And I think part of the problem is, you know, Cameron's been waiting to make this film for so long, even though he announced that there will be additional sequels coming out, it's like everything gets shoveled into this one. So much gets funneled into it. And not only in terms of the Avatar characters and all those permutations, 
but also a, a sense really of his own career. He's kind of, you know, he's self-referential. We even get, you know, allusions to Titanic, if you will. It's all piled on here. And the film would be so much better if it had less in a lot of ways. So when Marie talks about how effective the 3D is, particularly the underwater footage, it's spectacular. It's really great. But how much of that do you need? And there's so many overlapping storylines and so on. So, you know, Avatar, as you head in to see it, you know, this latest way of water film, as you head in to see it, there's so much anticipation, sort of that once in a blue moon feeling like here it comes along, you know, a film we've been waiting so long for. But as you watch it, I think there really is a fatigue factor that kicks in. And ultimately, the film is, is disappointing in that respect. So on the one hand, technically, it's as first rate as you would expect from James Cameron. But on the other hand, I think he just tries to put too much into this film. And honestly, you know, in terms of a blockbuster mentality and with a high-powered auteur fueling it, who's going to tell him otherwise? And Marie and I have had this conversation before, like, it's just, you almost wish it were the old studio days in the sense of some really mean and, and bean-counting executive saying, uh, Jim, you know, we don't want you to go over two and a half hours, but there's no one to do that. Marie, why don't you pick up on that? Because it seems to me that this is like, you know, the downside of the kind of freedom that, that a director like, like Cameron has. Well, you've hit on the problem here in that he did something so spectacular the last time around that he got a blank check for this one. And he has said there will not be a director's cut. And Mike, what could be in the director's cut? <laughs> no, the director's cut is where the director puts in all the stuff that the studio execs made him cut, you know, to make the movie a, a reasonable length. What was left on the table? I mean, obviously, it's very difficult when you put all the technology in and you've done all of the planning, because apparently he, you know, got the story straight for the sequels that are supposed to come afterwards, trying to, you know, go with the, you know, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings strategy. Some things have already been shot for the sequels to come. I mean, there's a lot of planning, a lot of money. I can understand wanting to keep it all. But I mean, that runtime is just deadly. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, is, you know, given that there are some movies that are that long, you know, Gone with the Wind, for example, when it was, you know, out in the theaters, many Indian Bollywood movies, and they have an intermission. Do you think there was a mistake not to plan an intermission? Or do you think people would have just, you know, left to use the restroom and just gone home without looking to see how it ended? Well, you know, there's a whole different sense of theatrical presentation now. I mean, back in the old days, think about the sword and sandal epics and, and other big budget films like in the 50s, where typically you would have, you know, the red curtains part and the orchestral overture starts up and then the image comes on and you have that sense of presentation. And yes, in a really long film, you would have an intermission. And then, you know, it almost is presented more like, when I say theatrical presentation, almost more like a theater piece, right? The way in which it's packaged. Nowadays, we tend to package and present movies somewhat differently. And so there's that historically that we don't tend to take intermissions now during longer films and the, you know, the pluses and minuses and discussing that. But I think, Marie, in this particular case, an intermission would be a mistake for a compelling reason, namely that because the 3D is so literally immersive, it really is putting you underwater like that. You don't want to come up for air. You don't want to have anything, any kind of break there, because I think that would sort of snap you out of it, and then you'd have to get yourself back into it. So I think once you're underwater, you need to stay there. And as with the Navi, you know, I learned to hold my breath, right? You know, you just, you, you know how to stay underwater for a long period of time. And also, if you think about it, with an intermission, a film that now runs 
like three hours and 10 minutes would be closer to three and a half if you took the intermission. So you must well bring a sleeping bag with you and just camp out <laughs> in the lobby. I do think it's a missed opportunity to sell more popcorn, though. Well, that's where the theaters make a lot of their money. So, I mean, from that perspective, yeah, you could sell more popcorn. But, you know, gosh, I'm one of those people. I actually go to see the movies. So so <laughs> I, I, can, I can go for a few hours without food, actually. I have tremendous self-discipline. I can go for three hours without eating. Well, you know, all, all kidding aside, you know, in terms of what they attempted to do with this movie that hadn't been done before. Let's talk about that. I mean, most of this movie occurs underwater, which is kind of cool. The actors involved had to learn to do free diving where you don't take the air with you. You hold your breath, you go underwater, you do your thing. I mean, it's hard enough to act, you know, while you can breathe. But, you know, that's an amazing thing. Kate Winslet apparently made it almost seven minutes underwater without having to come up for air. So, you know, I mean, they really dedicated themselves to, you know, the the world they created, which by the way, Mike, I'm not a big gamer, but back in the day, there used to be a couple of games called Riven and Mist. And as soon as Avatar started and we sunk into the water and this world, I felt like I was entering one of those gaming worlds. And I then thought to myself, well, am I believing it? Do I feel like I'm actually in it? And I have to say, yes, it was very successful in creating a fantastical world that was at once believable and, you know, completely mythical. Well, the actors also have to act while they're blue, and that's not an easy thing to do always. But you know what? You raise a really good point. When we talked about how influential Avatar was in terms of launching this current wave of spectacles, it is not coincidental that that overlaps with the incredible surge of interest in gaming. I mean, that we're very much in, in, in the midst of, because watching the original Avatar, I'm not a gamer at all myself, but watching a movie like that, I became one as I was watching it. So I understand what you're saying. You really do get sort of pulled into the game that way. And again, at the level of craftsmanship, you know, Jim Cameron is, is so skillful that when you have, you know, whether it's a fight scene or a chase or whatever, you know, you watch, you know, shot by shot, just how well shot and how well edited that is. There's some really exciting sequences within the film. And so even though I, after a while, felt it was kind of tedious, I would perk up when one of those scenes came on. And yet even there, you just feel like, okay, it's like so many of today's blockbuster films, the superhero films, they don't know when to quit. You and I've had this discussion where, you know, okay, I'm all for building towards a climax, but then have the climax, denouement, let us go home. But, you know, it's like, no, this and then that, and they, they just keep piling it on. And again, it's a lack of discipline in a certain sense, particularly when you know you're going to have additional sequels. You don't have to say everything now, hold some of it back. The audience will appreciate that. We want to look forward to the next one. Right now, I feel exhausted from the one I just watched. <laughs> So I did want to mention, though, that one of the reasons that they decided to do it that way, where the people actually hold their breath and, and do their thing, they said, this isn't Aquaman hanging on a wire with a fan in their hair. So I appreciate that, you know, effort to make something, you know, realistically, how would this work if these were, this was really happening in real life? I also wanted to say, I really liked seeing Edie Falco in the small role that she has. But the funny thing about it was that, you know, they did some of the photography and then of course things were held up because of the pandemic, or, you know, just the amount of time it takes to put a movie like this together. And then of course, post-production that she just assumed that the movie came out and bombed. And that's why, you know, no, nobody talked about it. And then, you know, said somebody said something to her about, oh, the new Avatar movie's coming out. And she was actually surprised because it had just been so long since she had filmed her her part. 
that she almost completely forgotten about it. She said that was not a popular uh, thing for her to have said, by the way. Well, that's not unusual, actually. And, and, you know, the pandemic aside, even, you know, a film like this involves so much post-production that oftentimes you'll shoot your part like a year or so before the film itself comes out. And so I can understand from an actor's perspective, she's thinking, whatever happened to that film? Because, you know, that mm -hmm. was on her calendar the other year. The other thing that I really liked was the way they incorporated a new character that kind of gave us Sigourney Weaver's character back, even though she had in the first Avatar. I thought that was really well done and nice touch because we get her character back in sort of a new and younger way. What did you think of that particular conceit, Mike? I had very mixed feelings. On the one hand, I really love Sigourney Weaver, you know, just to see her back that way. And it was on a sentimental note, it was nice to have that character sort of reincarnated. So yes, on the one hand that. On the other hand, as with so many of the superhero movies, does anybody ever really die? You know, there's so many ways in which you can bring them back that after a while, it starts to feel like a bit of a cheat. And it's like yanking the chain. And, and where I think an audience, or at least this audience member, can turn on it sometimes. Let's say I'm, I'll present it in a hypothetical sense. You're watching a film and one of the characters, you know, meets her demise and you get sad and even cry a little bit. Oh, my God, she's gone. And but then you go to see the sequel and they have some ridiculous excuse for what brings her back, whether actually back or some, some sort of avatar reincarnation. Don't you sometimes feel that you've been taken advantage of and used that way, like emotionally manipulated, like, oh, you know, she was gone, but now she's back. Am I happy that she's back? I don't know. I might almost be resentful, like let her rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of two minds with that. One, yes, there is something cynical about, man, could we just wring some more emotion out of the love people had for this character? But the other part of it is, yeah, just really glad to see them back. So I don't know. I guess I could cut both ways. They do the same thing with bringing back the villain. You know, yeah, at absolutely. one point, you're, you know, you're like, I thought we vanquished that guy. Well, you know what happens? Usually they have at least some sort of hologram or something like, you know, <laughs> Star Trek kind of thing. Like here, here, he's still around more or less. And metaphysically, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. But, <laughs> but as a viewer, ultimately, I guess when I say mixed feelings, mixed to negative feelings about it, I think sometimes in a series like this, you know, certain things are meant to come to an end, and yet the series itself goes on. So if you always find excuses to bring people back, well, it's almost like the laws of physics are so suspended that, and I always say this about science fiction, that you can have a ridiculous premise, right? But you need logical development of it. Because if if anything goes, nothing matters. And, and so you need, you need to have certain ground rules. And I think a lot of the superhero movies now are so fast and loose with that, and you get into that, too, with, with the, the sort of multiverse mentality of, you know, you have one franchise sort of melding with another franchise. And at a certain point, I think I, I'm not sure I want to have like Superman popping up in everybody else's franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I think you are right about all of the things that you have said. Mike, maybe we need to shift gears now. But, you know, before we leave our avatar, other than technical achievement, is this going to make any sort of splash at the Oscars? I think it has to, inevitably. I mean, there was so much anticipation, and there's so much accomplishment here. So it goes without saying it will get a host of nominations in technical categories. And I assume, well, should I assume, but, you know, probably for best. I mean, it's doing really well at the box office. So, And it's had mixed critical notices, but commercially a hit. And so, you know, particularly with the expanded field of best picture nominations, if it were only like five you know, you might think, eh, maybe yes, maybe no. But once you go up to like nine or 10, probably yes, right? I'm not thinking it'll win 
in categories like that. And I don't think it'll win in categories like acting or anything, but it might get some nominations there just simply because it can't be denied. How can you say no to James Cameron, right? I mean, he, he's, you know, he's, he's going to get nominations there. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. So let's move on to Babylon, which I think of as sort of a companion piece to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, that's sort of the obvious comparison. This, of course, is about the time period early film with the silence turning into the talkies. Mike, where do we start with this one? Well, you know what? I spent the tail end of uh, last year watching these two movies <laughs> because Avatar is over three hours and Babylon is over <laughs> three hours. So I didn't do anything else. I haven't seen my relatives or friends. I haven't done any housework, <laughs> nothing. I've been watching these movies. I've got to say flat out, I think Babylon is, if not a disaster, a near disaster. I think it's a terrible really. Thing. I think really? I think it's a terrible film. Oh, okay. And, and well, I, you and need I'd, to, I'd be like... happy to spend three hours telling you what, how bad it is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> let, well, let, let me start off as a film. As a you know, I I just taught a course uh, this past semester on Hollywood in the 1920s. It's an area of particular interest, and so I do tend to nitpick when it comes to things like this. And I'll be polite and say that Babylon is sloppy in dealing with Hollywood film history in the 20s. And I'll, I'll cite just a few examples. And, and you know, if you're going to make a movie that's really very much set in the period from 1926 through the late 20s, early 30s, the coming of sound and so on, you better do your homework. It's almost like they did their homework and then went out for a drink and it was like the heck with it, you know, and just tossed it all in there. Let me give three examples of how I think it's really fast and loose and irritating, actually. In the film, there's a moment where you see one of the most famous headlines from Variety, Wall Street lays an egg. That was a headline that was in response to the Wall Street crash in 1929. In the film, it's used for something that happens like about two years earlier. It's like, what? You know, it, it's like, that's really sloppy. I mean, if you're writing a, a term paper, you, you, you know, your, your proverbial red pen would hover over something like that. The second example I'll give is when our female protagonist is just becoming a movie star. She's in a film and she's sitting in the audience watching it with a, a regular audience. It's a movie palace type theater. It's got the big screen and people well-dressed. And it's not like some rinky-dink neighborhood house. It's a big downtown theater she's watching. And why do I say that? Well, as she's watching herself on screen, the film as she's watching it, and of course, as we're watching it too, is completely silent for a few minutes. And I think, no, 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 every silent film, particularly in that kind of presentation, a movie palace presentation, definitely would have had live musical accompaniment. Absolutely. Whether it's a full orchestra in the pit, at the Hippodrome, or, or at least somebody at the organ, whatever. And it was so ridiculous to have it unreal and complete silence like that. So that's the second example. The third example, and you might say, well, that's a, I'm, a, I'm a film academic and I'm nitpicking. Yes, I am. But the third one, I think, should bother almost anyone watching it, namely that the dialogue in this film, and it's a terrible script, but the dialogue in this film is pitched at a 21st century audience. Now, I'm not saying that people in the 20s didn't curse. They had swear words, too, and including the, you know, the, the F-bomb and all that. They had all that. But when you listen to this dialogue, um, there's almost nothing of what I would call 20s lingo. There's almost nothing of speech patterns that people would have had then. And for the sake of argument, I'll go along with the film in that you know, these are out of control movie stars and directors and all misbehaving in 101 different ways. And they curse a blue streak. And yes, that was often the case. And there were plenty of scandals back then. So people had occasion to, to curse in all sorts of ways. Okay, take that as, as a given. But what happens here is the script seems to have a vocabulary of about 10 words. And every other word is an obscenity. 
And it bothered me so much. And people might think, oh, are you being puritanical? And say, no, no, no. It wasn't that I was offended. I was bored. It just it was tedious after a while to have just the same few cuss words coming out of almost everybody's mouth every other sentence. So those are a few of the reasons why I, I really hated it. But since I'm tabulating reasons, let me actually give a sense of how misshapen the film is. It opens with this Bacchanalian party. Imagine like a Cecil B. DeMille orgy scene in a 20s film, but one that's rated not PG-13, but like a hard R, right? And so it's all kinds of degradation, whether it's drugs, sex, you name it, it's all there. This scene goes on and on and on. And there's going to be a later party scene in the film that recapitulates it. How much of that do you need? It's so out of control. My basic feeling is that the director of this film, Damien Chazelle, who got a lot of well-deserved recognition for La La Land, another L.A. story, I think he's out of control here. I think all the recognition, all the fame sort of went to his head. And speaking of tossing everything into the movie, it's all tossed into this movie. And in the sequence like that opening party scene, that endless party, I thought, am I watching a, a Damien Chazelle film or a Baz Luhrmann film? It really seemed to me that's that's the kind of excess that we had here. And, you know, it does you know anything succeed like, like excess? It's really, really uh, vexing to watch things like that. And so what happens is you end up with a very busy movie. There's a lot that happens, a lot of activity, a lot of cussing, a lot of this and that. And yet, ironically, for all that activity, all that movement, there's no momentum. The film is, I, I would say, dead on arrival. It's what I call pointless spectacle. It doesn't mean anything. And the characters are so wafer thin that we can talk about them a bit. And you know, again, as a film academic, I'm curious about how the characters are presented and who they're meant to be. In terms of film history, we can talk about that. But in terms of scripting, they are so flat. They have almost no dimensionality psychologically. So I would go on as long as the film, but I better turn it over to you again. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I did not hate it as much as you did. Although, you know, from the get-go, if you're going to make me sit for that long, you better make it worth my while. And I thought it was bloated and self-important. But I love that you said pointless spectacle and excess, because that's really what the movie is supposed to be about. So I didn't find that as grating as you did. The things that I liked about it were that the Brad Pitt character was supposed to be you know, sort of a John Gilbert sort of a character. So if you look him up, then you sort of see more about what they were trying to get across with, you know, here's this really popular, affable actor. And of course, we're looking at him in, you know, 21st century eyes. He's very likable and affable. So it's very believable. Also completely different from the character he played in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But then apparently Emma Stone was supposed to get the, the role that went to Margot Robbie. And when it was Emma Stone in the role, it was supposed to be much more of a Clara Bow kind of character. Well, when they replaced her with Margot Robbie, they made it much more of a fictional character. But I loved her as a character. And in particular, and what I, while I was watching it, thought I'm so excerpting this for any of the classes that I teach on film, is the scene they run over and over and over again to show you how hard it is to get a scene because something keeps going wrong. Somebody doesn't hit their mark. Somebody isn't ready. Somebody didn't do something. Somebody fluffed the line. It's too loud. It's too soft. It takes forever. And they do a really good job of showing the really nitpicking exactitude that goes into putting a movie together. Well, Did you I like that part, Mike, that, that no, specific I, part? 
No, no, Marie, I, I agree with you in the sense that this film works when it's excerpted. If I could have it just as a 10 minute <laughs> film and scenes like the one you're mentioning, yes, on their own, you know, they, they make that point. But since you're mentioning the characters and who they're supposed to match up with, it's very loose here. And that's OK. These are fictionalized characters. But yes, the Brad Pitt characters meant to be like John Gilbert, uh, a dashing romantic lead. But in silent films, he has reason to worry about what the coming of sound will mean for him. And yes, the Nellie Leroy character the, the played by Margot Robbie, she is more or less Clara Bow. And, you know, again, very loosely inspired and a very loose character. The performance she gives as an actor is quite good. The character is totally out of control. So I don't blame the actor for that. The character is ridiculous after a while, but can be entertaining in small doses. There's also, in terms of uh, like real Hollywood parallels, who are these people meant to be? One that's obvious here is there's a Lady Faye character, you know, an Asian character in the film, and she's meant to be a, a movie star like uh, Anna Mae Wong. So, so again, that's another one. And, and somebody who is playing more or less who the real person is, there's an Irving Thalberg character, who is Irving Thalberg in the film. And so you get a few things like that. And so you, you do get some characterization where you start to think about real parallels. But you know what? This is a hazardous thing, because when we actually watch the films they're making, Marie, when you mentioned how many takes they have to do, when you actually watch watch the takes and then you watch the completed films they're making, they're making really mediocre films. What they're making does not look very promising, unlike what these real life actors were doing. So it does a disservice to the quality of films being made then, because what, what they're making looks really tacky and really kind of shoddy, technically and dramaturgically. And so that really hurts it. And finally, like the, the nail in the coffin for me is that you know, one of the all-time great films, of course, is Singing in the Rain, which gets referenced so directly here, so overtly. And understandably, they would want to refer to it within this film because it's all about the coming of sound. But where it's really, really painful to watch is as you're watching actual excerpts from Singing in the Rain or at least having references to it, it's a reminder of what a great film that is and what a less than great film this one is. You quote a film like that at your peril, right? That you're going to come up short. You, this is no Singing in the Rain. Well, it is no Singing in the Rain, but I do think it has it has its moments. I, don't, I wouldn't give it a complete pan. I did enjoy certain things about it. I also read that the director, Damien Chazelle, had, you know, a COVID messed up so many people's plans. You know, he had actually shot this entire movie on his phone, trying to sort of work it out, you know, the kinds of things he was going to try to do and whatnot. So I don't know, Mike, maybe he just didn't workshop it enough. But given that Hollywood loves movies about itself, where do you think Babylon is going to shake out in terms of awards at the when we get there? Well, it receives stridently negative reviews. And then secondly, hasn't done much commercially. It may get a few Oscar nominations, but I don't think there's any enthusiasm for it in, in that respect, because, you know, there, there are much better films about Hollywood, including including Quentin Tarantino's that you mentioned earlier. I, I mean, you know, they're, they're they know, singing in the rain, the all time best, but any number of other films that do a better job of it than, than Babylon. So I, I really think Babylon is, is is dismal. I mean, you know, I can excerpt a few scenes, as you mentioned, and, you know, they're well shot, but three hours of it, uh, you know, that's a lot. Idol. Do you think that's going to bring anybody in? It seems to indicate it's going to be about the excesses of Hollywood. And yes, that is what it's about but i think it's a terrible title for bringing in audience what do you think mike 
Well, yes and no. I mean, the film scholar in me thinks about, you know, D.W. Griffith's intolerance. I think about Babylon that way and certainly Hollywood Babylon, you know, and, and there are all kinds mm -hmm. of references in Hollywood histories to Babylon itself. So in that respect, it's perfectly valid. But for a general audience, not making those kinds of film historical connections, it might be puzzling. It might be off-putting in that respect. Babylon, what does that mean? What's, what does it conjure up? But thematically, it actually is an appropriate title for the film. It is. You know, what is ironic, though, and I wanted to make sure I mention is I did not notice the cussing at all. Isn't that funny? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was nonstop cussing. <laughs> Maybe I just discounted it because it was just so all pervasive, but that isn't one of the takeaways I had from the movie. I thought the runtime was too long and it was too ambitious. But I did think that some of the things they showed you about what it took to, you know, get a film in the can, even when it was shorter, you know, back in the day and silent going to talkies, you just like bringing the new technology in. I thought some of those scenes behind the scenes made it worth the watch, but renting so you can pause it because, you know, three hours plus is just too much. A lot of effort went into making a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see how it does at the Oscars. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.